This is Monday Morning QB, January 11, 2021. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, never mind the future of the GOP, can the nation itself survive? We asked the former chairman of the Republican National Committee. With just over a week remaining in his term, calls are getting louder to remove Donald Trump from office immediately. A retired Capitol Police officer explains some of the political bureaucracy which tied the hands of cops trying to defend the Capitol from the treasonous Trump-inspired mob last Wednesday. The disproportionate response the white mob received compared to peaceful black demonstrators at the Capitol. And the time is now right for statehood in the district. All that and more... Stay with us. The danger caused by the treasonous insurrection at the direction of President Trump at the U.S. Capitol last week has repercussions which go deeper than just the partisan divide between Democrats and Republicans, all the way to the very foundation of the U.S. democracy itself. This according to Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee and former lieutenant governor of Maryland. Oh, it's very dangerous. Uh, and, and what I think people should not lose sight of is that there's st- it's still pulsating. Um, they're not crowds uh, craw- you know, climbing the walls of the Capitol right now. But there are people um, that are out there still planning. Uh, this is not done. Um, in fact, uh, there are reports out this morning that on the web and in other uh, social media uh, networks, uh, this conversation amongst these people is still ongoing and they are planning. And so it is going to be incumbent on um, everyone from the local level right up uh, to the highest offices of the federal government to make sure they get a handle on this. So this is, I don't believe it's done. And I, and I believe what the president has unleashed is something that um, is is insidious and dangerous, and we need to be smart about it. So it's not time to exhale. Oh no, no, no! You you know this is this 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 pot has been stewing for a long time, and I would I would dare say longer than the five years that Donald Trump has been. Um, on the national scene, uh, you know, as a presidential candidate and then as president. Um, this is deep-rooted and deep-seated. I saw ele- elements of it when I was national chairman, and we were able to uh, manage uh, around a lot of that and, and not give give it air uh, inside the GOP. No, we're not in a position to exhale at all. Are yeah. there, in fact, two Republican parties yeah, it's a very good question, and I think I, I think the short answer is yes. Um, the The importance of your question is what does it mean for longer term? Um, does this, you know, does this the civil nature of of, of this party, you know, one that is a, a, about uh, this pro democracy, uh, pro free enterprise, uh, pro individual rights, um, and and has. Uh, a respect for the dignity of others versus one that is embracing uh, white nationalism, fascism, uh, totalitarianism. Which which of these two 
um, competing uh, identities uh, emerges. And that's going to depend on the leaders. I mean, we have uh, members of the United States Senate, Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz, um, you know, being being cheerleaders of this. You have people who have blind ambition, think they will be the next Donald Trump or the next president, uh, not caring about uh, what this does to the very fabric of, of our republic, um, pushing their own personal ambitions above uh, the interest of the country. Um, and so as citizens, we need to check that. As citizens, we can't forget who they are. Their names need to be named. These people may dress up nice and they look, you know, they look good in their suits and they wear the, you know, the congressional and senatorial lapel pins very well. But their actions and their words undermine the very things that um, that define who we are as citizens and as a country. Um, and they should not be empowered and they should not be in leadership. And I think that's going to be a real test for us um, going forward, because the next person who embraces this kind of crazy is going to be smarter, slicker cleaner and sound a hell of a lot better than Donald Trump. And so we, we need to, we need to guard against that. That, that door has now been open and we know what it looks like. We need to be better prepared for it. I mean, there are people I've had conversations with over the years who actually say, Oh yeah, you know, a civil war is coming. I'm like, why (laughs) over what, you know? And then when you press them, you realize that their grievances are grounded in something that's not necessarily real. I mean, it's just this, yeah, every, all of us have, have, have suffered through the hard times of the economic collapse of 2008, of the loss of jobs and opportunities, the, the crushing blows from the, you know, the economic impact of COVID-19, the disproportionate impact, especially on communities of colors. You don't see black folks out there you know, storming the Capitol um, because of after 401 years of what we've been through. Um, we've never stormed the Capitol. And yet, you know, you, these folks, this, this sense of privilege, this sense of, uh, of ownership and entitlement leads them uh, when they feel that that is threatened and they feel that that is somehow less strong than it should be, leads them to these kinds of actions. Um, we all know that if that were black folks climbing those walls and breaching those capital grounds and doors, um, a heck of a lot more than, than four people, five people would have been killed. A lot more arrests would have been made than 50. Um, and, and so that also speaks to that, that, that resistance to, uh, the change. The country looks less and less white. The, company, the country has opened itself up to embrace and understand its past and the stain of racism and, and slavery um, on, its, on, its, on its fabrics. Um, and it's trying to deal with that. But there are those who don't want to reconcile that issue. Um, there are those who don't want to reconcile what that means for the country because it is a direct affront to their, their privilege. Well, you know, your privilege be damned because this is what the country's about. We are about that change. Um, and while the words of the, of its founding were written by those who owned slaves, those slaves, the descendants of those slaves are now, uh, coming into their own. And, and one will be a vice president. One was a president. Uh, and, and so we, we, 
we have to reconcile a lot here in this country and watching the white resistance to that is going to be something that's going to be important to check because um, if we don't, this is what you'll see, uh, what happened this week. And that's what Donald Trump stoked. He stoked it for four years. He lit a flame on it, and every every day he would increase that flame just a little bit more, just a little bit more, until we saw what happened this week. With that resistance in mind, how precarious is the survival of the nation? Well, that to me is is the most important question, and it's where it's where I hold out the most hope. I believe very firmly in e pluribus unum. Out of many, one. I believe in those words because um, if we don't, then we then we cease to exist. Um, this nation was born out of this idea um, that um, this this was the place where where the, those dreams could come and 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 flourish and be made real. And we know, the, as I just referenced, the the tortured past and 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 present. Um, you know, Breonna Taylor and, and, and others are an example of, of, of the tortured remnants, remnants of, of that history. But still, um, this idea that we're going to do our best to hold this union together uh, is as profoundly important today as it was in 1860. And I think um, that's going to be our test. We, the people, are the three most powerful words in all of our founding documents to me. And it matters that we embrace those those words at this hour because you and I know, and I think a lot of us know, um, that that's not our mission and that's not what we've been about. There's work ahead. There's no doubt about that. There's work ahead. But I believe in we, the people, I believe the people of this country recognize now more than ever with the shock of what happened on Wednesday in front of them uh, that, yeah, we got something at stake here. And the question that has to be answered is whether or not it's going to be enough to fight for. Michael Steele, former chairman of the Republican National Committee, former lieutenant governor of Maryland. Thank you for talking with us. It's my pleasure. Take care. After the failed insurrection at the U.S. Capitol last week, President Trump's status has become unclear, even with just a week before his term expires. House Majority Leader Representative Steny Hoyer is expected today to ask for unanimous consent for a resolution demanding Vice President Mike Pence invoke the 25th Amendment and remove Trump from office. If Pence does not, the House is expected to begin the process to impeach Trump for a second time, with a vote taking place later this week. After that, an indictment would go to the Senate to trigger a trial, possibly after the first 100 days of the new administration of Joe Biden. If Congress impeaches him after he leaves office and the Senate convicts him, it would keep him from ever holding office again. The demands to remove Trump before the inauguration began even as the treasonous insurrection was taking place. That's when Representatives Ted Lieu, David Cicilline, and Jamie Raskin 
began drafting an article of impeachment, which they will introduce today, charging Trump with incitement of insurrection. On Friday, Lou explained to the Associated Press why it is so important to begin this process. It's something we can't just ignore. We can't just pretend that Wednesday didn't happen. This was a direct attack on our democracy, and Congress simply can't just sit by and issue strongly worded press releases as a response. Doing nothing is not an option. Representative Ilhan Omar said Sunday that she too will be introducing articles of impeachment, citing Trump's attempt to overturn the results of the November election, as well as orchestrating a coup. She spoke with MSNBC about why for her too, doing nothing is not an option. For far too long, you know, so many people have excused his actions, have excused his rhetoric. And today we are all living with the reality that the capital of the United States was attacked. Members had to hide under their chairs, be summoned into one room, some members hiding in their own bathrooms in their own offices. I mean, this is just a complete tragedy. Uh, and that pain is not only being felt by the members, it's being felt by our staff, you know, everyone who works at the Capitol, every single person who cares about our democracy and the state of our republic. Uh, and you know, to, to come back and to say, you know, we're just going to move on and there are not going to be consequences and accountability uh, is something that I am not comfortable with and no one in the United States should be comfortable with. Representative Ilhan Omar speaking with MSNBC. Even a small number of Republicans have joined the growing call for Trump to leave office immediately. But as Representative Adam Schiff explained on MSNBC, that's not likely to happen. But the president has never been concerned with what's best for the country, only what's best for himself. So I don't have a whole lot of hope or expectation that he will do the right thing, nor, frankly, do I have a lot of expectation that the vice president will do the right thing. Uh, that would be an aberration for him over these four years as well. Um, the members of our caucus are not content uh, to do anything less than use every instrument in our power to protect the country. Every day this man remains in office, he is a danger to the republic. Even after this failed insurrection, he was back on Twitter with further incendiary tweets. Uh, and that's what we have to expect. Uh, so uh, I think we need to move with expedition. The, the, the founders, the framers, they wrote a brilliant construct that allows the Congress to move with, with alacrity when the circumstances require it. And here they do. And so we can move swiftly to the floor to impeach this man. Uh, and we need the Senate to undertake its responsibility as well. Representative Adam Schiff was the lead impeachment manager for Donald Trump's first impeachment. He was speaking to MSNBC. As this story unfolds, the question facing lawmakers isn't just about how best to remove Trump from office. Speaking to CBS on Friday, Representative Benny Thompson explained why he is among those who think holding Trump accountable for what happened on Wednesday should go further than that. He promoted it. Uh, he provided the fuel uh, that created uh, the breach 
and what occurred at the United States Capitol. So we will have to do our job, the legislative function it, in terms of what we look at. Uh, we have to look at all those remedies. Uh, now, the other part is, is whether or not there will be other opportunities to address it when he's no longer president. Uh, I'm one of those individuals who think even though you're a president, you're not above the law. So I'm looking forward to the complete and thorough review uh, of this process. And if he's complicit uh, in any way uh, to being able to be charged, I'm looking forward to those charges being brought. Representative Benny Thompson speaking with CBS. For some Democrats, it's not just Trump who needs to be held accountable. Representative Cori Bush explained to NPR why she is introducing a resolution to have the Republican members of the House who supported overturning the election removed from office. This was a racist Republican attempt to overturn this election and disenfranchise the voices of black and brown and indigenous voters who delivered this election for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and how it has led to a crisis of our democracy. And now it has incited a domestic terror attack. It must be condemned in the strongest possible terms. And I believe the Republican members whose actions have incited this violence must be removed in Congress. And so let me tell you, I am introducing a resolution calling for the removal of any and all members of Congress who have for months tried to steal this election and invalidate the votes of black, brown, and indigenous people. The dangerous consequences of their actions are on full display right now, and as my colleagues and I are on lockdown, this needs to happen. There is no place in the people's house for these heinous actions. And it's not just Trump and his Republican supporters being called out across the country. People are decrying a double standard in how police dealt with the mob of pro-Trump extremists, leaving many to ask, what if the rioters had been black? Again, Representative Cory Bush speaking with AP on January 6th. We would have been laid out on the ground. There would have been, there would have been shootings. There would have been people in jail. There would have been people beat with batons. And I know because I've been there. And, and we didn't even have to put our hands on police officers to get that. All you had to do was curse a police officer out and you could be laid out on the ground. You could just show up at the protest and you were in, you were you could be beaten. This is why we stand up. This is why Cap took a knee. This is why we won't shut up. This is why we keep coming back. This is why I ran for this seat. This is why folks fighting for black lives have to be brought to the table and I'm the one to do it. Donald Trump, the life of the woman that I hear died today that was shot, that blood, her blood is on his hands. Representative Cory Bush speaking with AP on the day Trump-supporting rioters invaded the Capitol. Many fingers pointing about who's to blame for the security breach at the Capitol on Wednesday are directed at the top. The outgoing Capitol Hill police chief, Stephen Sund, said two days before the incident, he was not permitted to call for reinforcements by the bureaucracy above him. 
the House and Senate sergeants at arms, and the House and Senate architects of the Capitol. This literally tied the hands of the totally undermanned police force which tried to hold off the hordes. Not at all like when Black Lives Matter came calling. According to a retired Capitol Police officer who asked that his name be withheld because he still does work with the agency. You got so many politicians with their hands in what what the police will react to, who they will react to, how they react to it. And knowing that these folks were coming up there and pretty much were led by the top Republican, uh, the devil that we had in that house, in that White House, they were probably more reluctant to show a show of force. They didn't want to incite them, and it was almost like a white passport, white privilege, mm. you know. And I think that they just not only underestimated, just, just took it for granted, were probably told to kind of stand down. So I'm kind of surprised that I didn't see a more direct show of force. You know, but I'm on the outside looking in. I wasn't actually there when they came in. You know from working there as well as I do, even if you're at the door, and I was trying to explain to people, I can't put it totally on the police because if you're at an entry point and you have four people that are working at the entry point with you, maybe even six, when that door gets crowded, if the people just all of a sudden want to burst into the door and you got two or 300 of them at the door, they're already the deal. And if they do that at, at two or three doors all at one time, most of the people that are in the building or the police department are pretty much in the counted positions. It's not like you have a, a you know, a 2,000, they, they say it's 2,000 men, but they're stretched out over, you know, those, those different buildings, all the way from the Library of Congress to the Senate to the Capitol. So they're stretched out. And then you got three shifts. When men are in the building, you have, a, you know, pretty much a limited manpower. Uh, they could have called in extra folks to work. I'm not sure whether or not they prepared to call in extra bodies for it. But if they were just operating under uh, normal conditions, and people were already uh, situated in positions, they probably just got caught off guard with the magnitude of the people that came in and the force they came in. Because they want to operate that hill as an open democracy. That's why it's not a fence around it, like the White House, see? And they want democracy to be transparent. They want people to feel like they can come in. And they say, well, they just burst into the doors and they let them in. But basically, you can get in and out of the Capitol. You know that, under certain circumstances. So... If they come to the door and just rush the door and start tearing down the door and they get in, it's not a whole lot you can do. So what does that do to the morale? Cause... Well, I think that sometimes people are apprehensive to use uh, the ultimate level of force because of the repercussions. You know, you got to realize it depends on who's in charge because the power goes from the Senate sergeant arms to the House sergeant arms. One of them is in charge of telling the chief the instructions that they want to do. And then you got the architect of the Capitol. So you had three different layers that are over top of the chief that are pretty much uh, kind of doing the blueprint in terms of exactly how they want to deal with each group. Because you know as well as I do, when these groups come up there, that includes ACORN. ACORN has to be uh, something. Somebody has to support ACORN. Somebody supports code pink. Somebody supported these proud boys. And when the president made that speech today, 
and he have all these Republicans falling in line right behind him. I'm not surprised what we got. It was a power cage. And he's right now desperately trying to just make everything upside down in America. And uh, that's what he did. He, and he almost like used the police department as a puppet. That's what it appears to me. Wow. Because they could have very well had uh, the same setup for these people that they did for Black Lives Matter. I didn't see any uh, <laughs> National Guards he set up. And then it was a while before he even called out for any assistance. And then they called Metropolitan Police to come in. You know, so I don't know. It seemed like it was really unorganized. And uh, they were giving them the benefit of the doubt of just being real peaceful and not really thinking that this crowd was going to get out of control like it did. Almost like you had paid agitators. If you look at how they were dressed, the guys that first breached that place had military gear on, helmets, flat jacks. They came specifically to engage in some kind of uh, unrest. They don't look like they just came up there with a, with a ball cap on and a shirt. Look at the way some of those folks were dressed. They came up there specifically to do what they did. Yeah, so I don't know. You know, it, it, and once again, being at the bottom on the outside looking in, I mean, me, I would have just definitely had it set up pretty much like I did with Black Lives That Matter. I mean, they had the military, park police, everybody was involved. They had helicopters. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, it just wasn't enough preparation for this. And, you know, that, that fell on somebody's shoulder. I don't know if it was deliberate, that they just did a soft hand approach. Or if it was uh, something that just just happened, but it never should have happened, because when you start dealing with crowds this agitated for a situation so delicate as it was going on, in my opinion, you should have handled it like it was a power cake, and it was only a match needed to set it off. What's going to be the fallout? You think in the department? Well, uh, somebody's going to have to go. I mean, from the top down, because uh, definitely decisions weren't made quick enough. I don't remember seeing any tear gas uh, going off. All I saw was some flash bangs going off. But then when it showed inside, once again, I wasn't inside. It seems like the police were doing the best they could to regain control of the people that were in the building. Once again, they want democracy to be transparent, open, uh, and the police pretty much are a deterrent with so many of them there. And with the political fallback, because once again, you don't know who's on whose side, who's team. Look how you have seven uh, senators still fighting this whole process with the, with the president-elect after, this, after the smoke. They still fight and arguing about uh, fraud. So with them coming up, setting up a noose out on that, I think they set up a big old noose and took pictures by it and some different things. I don't know. I think I would have uh, called out some heavy hitters when I started seeing some of that behavior that was going on. Somebody didn't make a decision. And at the bottom line, it seemed like they, you know, they, they utilized the, uh, the white passport. The skin. Thanks very much. Help me understand. As a matter of fact, see, I was an emergency responder when I left there. So my thing was to help out with these big 
mass crowds of people that would be coming in there. Some of the things that I saw in place, uh, you know, once again, I think they should have started closing them doors down when those crowds start trying to, you know, try to come up those steps. They should have just secured the building a little quick. I'd work at different places that, uh, sometime in the Capitol, sometime in Annex 2 when you were coming down for the credit union and whatnot. I'm not trying to be critical of them, but I think that, you know, and the only thing that really gets my, it kind of gets me, hits me in the gut was that the way the Million Man March was handled in terms of security uh, and the Black Lives Matter. Everything that a person of color is coming on the hill, they make sure they go through every effort they can. But once again, with this political football being like it is, the president is the one that goes along with the district in terms of calling out the National Guard. And, you know, and that I think when that happened between you and I, uh, a lot of those guys uh, left the department, got out of cert, the morale just dropped straight to the ground. Because sometimes they're operating, they feel like with one hand behind their back. Because the congressmen want to be so politically correct in what they do. Sometimes it's that the, uh, it loses something in terms of security. You know what I mean? The police response to Wednesday's riot pales in comparison to repression of this summer's anti-racist uprising, and local activists were quick to notice. Could this differential treatment refuel progressive movements? And will the demand to defund police survive the aftermath of this attempted coup? Reporter Chris Banger Drowns has more. The Metropolitan Police Department made over five times as many arrests per day at the peak of this summer's Black Lives Matter movement than they did during last week's riot at the Capitol, according to a CNN analysis. This disparity underscores what anti-racist organizers have been saying from the beginning. Cops are more violent and punitive towards black and brown people and their social movements. Sean Blackman is an organizer with Stop Police Terror Project DC and host of By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. He describes his reaction to the Capitol riot. When we look at what happened on January 6th, I mean, it's hard to see it as anything except a fascist insurrection. And the fact that this group was able to storm the Capitol seemingly with ease and then basically being escorted out I mean, it's hard not to feel that there was some level of collusion between this fascist mob and elements of the Capitol Police and perhaps even the the Department of Defense. I mean, I think we have to ask why, you know, when D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, when she asked for, you know, National Guard forces, she was ignored until the deed was done. And then, you know, all of a sudden now these resources were available. But to your point, what we know about these elements is that they hold every possible reactionary sentiment, right? So these are people who are white supremacists, you know, they're misogynists, they, you know, are shot through with anti-LGBTQ bigotry, anti-immigrant xenophobia, anti-Semitism, all of these things. And so what, what is clear 
since we see the kind of force that's being developed in the streets by these fascist elements, and since we've seen, frankly, a pathetic response from uh, Joe Biden and the Democrat Party to all this, it's clear that there has to be an independent mass movement across lines of division. That's going to be the only thing, I think, that is not only going to help push back uh, the rise of this uh, fascist movement that has coalesced around the individual figure of Donald Trump, but also uh, around the ongoing failure of this government and this system uh, to really care for people's needs. Because in my opinion, all of these different things um, are connected. I was talking to a law student friend last night and, and he articulated a fear here that this capital insurrection could spur new anti-insurrection legislation that you know initially would, might be targeted towards the far right and white supremacists, but ultimately that this expanded police power could ulti- could be used to disproportionately uh, repress the political left and grassroots progressive organizing uh, and sort of lose that focus on far-right extremism and white supremacy. Do you share that fear? Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely something we have to watch. I mean, particularly as we see, you know, Joe Biden um, talk more and more about wanting to tamp down on uh, uh, what he's calling domestic terrorism and uh, things like that. And and I do think that there could be uh, uh, an impact on actual grassroots progressive uh, left movements. And we've actually already started to to see this. I mean, there was a serious anti-protest bill uh, that was just passed in Florida, my home state, under uh, Governor uh, Ron DeSantis, a Republican governor that basically criminalized all matters of a different form of protest and basically uh, cleared the way for, you know, if people are blocking a highway and someone drives through them to basically absolve people, frankly, a vigilante terror attack is what I would describe it as, you know what I mean? And I should also point out that all throughout this summer, throughout the deep repression that we saw of uh, a movement for Black Lives protest against police terror. I mean, that was not only directed by Donald Trump, it was also directed by Democratic mayors and governors um, across this country, including D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser, who has this uh, ill-gotten reputation of being a quote-unquote progressive, even though she loves uh, uh, police terror, and that's not hyperbole. And so as a white supremacist capitalist country, the United States has always done everything it can to crush Um, any move to really challenge the status quo and to improve the conditions for poor working and oppressed people. And that's why I'm saying that we're in a moment now where we really have to be putting our energies towards building a mass movement. Because what we saw at the Capitol uh, this past week, this was not some clash between two groups of white people, as I've been seeing it portrayed in some circles. This is something that was instigated by, you know, uh, racist groups, like I said, who are shot through with all these different reactionary tendencies who literally want us all dead. And when we see these elements um, organizing amongst themselves more and more and more, you know, it seems like we'll either uh, organize a counter force to match that or suffer the consequences. You know, locally speaking, MPD is, is sort of being hailed as heroic after helping out Capitol Police uh, not really breaking up the riot, but just getting folks out and letting them go. You know, could this sort of activity and, and the response to it embolden MPD officers themselves to be maybe more aloof or, or more aggressive or even more terrorizing towards DC residents in their normal course of work, not when they're at the Capitol, but just sort of interacting with the black and brown residents of DC? 
I mean, the notion of the DC police, the Metropolitan Police Department being heroic to me is, is outright disgusting. I mean, was it heroic when they uh, killed Terrence Sterling or Karan Hilton or uh, Jeffrey Price or, or Dion Kay or Raphael Briscoe or any of the, the many people that DC police have been uh, responsible for killing uh, over the years with the uh, approval and facilitation of the mayor, mind you, there's nothing heroic about that. I mean, I live in Southeast DC, a majority poor working class black neighborhood and the police exist in DC's remaining black communities as an occupying force. And that's not an exaggeration. These are the most heavily policed um, uh, areas of the city. And so to, to answer your question more directly, I don't think they can get any more bold. Um, you know, I don't see how it's heroic to escort a fascist mob um, out of the Capitol. I mean, you know, uh, again, what we've been seeing all throughout this summer is the police in DC, whether in Black Lives Matter Plaza or elsewhere, not only uh, abusing uh, protesters, but turning a blind eye to the racist violence that these elements have brought time and again. Lastly, I, I wonder what this means for the demand for defunding police, not just in DC, but across the country. I mean, I'd imagine this sort of knee-jerk reaction for a lot of lawmakers and a lot of uh, voters too, is to say that you know police deserve more resources after this to, to better protect our institutions. You know, folks might say we need to back the blue in this sort of political context after the sixth. Is is it going to be more difficult to legitimize and win the demand to defund the police? Well, you know what makes that so ridiculous is the fact is the Capitol Police. Not only were they equipped to hold off the mob, the racist mob, if they wanted to, but they've also been far more uh, well-equipped for peaceful uh, demonstrations. I mean, I just, you know, I happen to know people that I work with through groups like the Answer Coalition and others who, who tried to stage peaceful protests at the Capitol who, you know, were, were threatened with mace just, just for talking too loud. And so here again, when it comes to these uh, progressive demonstrations that come to the Capitol and other parts of DC, I mean, they're met with, you know, like I say, like overwhelming military force. But when, uh, you know, a group of fascists show up, all of a sudden it's like the Keystone cops. So this notion that the cops need more money to better protect anyone. I mean, not only is it sort of presuming that they're not already well equipped, it, it presumes that they keep us safe to begin with. Now, do I think that um, this will hurt the, the movement towards defund the police? I don't think so necessarily because I think the people who already don't believe in defunding the police, I mean, I mean, certainly they'll try to probably use this as justification, but I mean, it's not like, you know, they would have had a different opinion had that not transpired. And so uh, as ever, I think the most important thing is for us to continue organizing is to keep our foot on the gas and to keep pressing this issue that uh, these police departments, the DC department included, have way too much money and they've been giving all this money to fail. Sean Blackman, organizer with Stop Police Terror Project DC and host of By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. In addition to the election of Joe Biden, 
the victories by the two Democratic candidates in the Georgia Senate runoff elections last Tuesday set the stage for the approval of D.C. statehood. All that is required for D.C. to be admitted into the union is the signature of the president on a bill passed with a majority vote in the House and a majority vote in the Senate. This can now happen according to Anise Jenkins, executive director of Stand Up, Free D.C. The person who was blocking our vote was Mitch McConnell from Kentucky, and he was the majority leader of the Senate, and that meant that the Republicans who have, who have not voted for statehood since we introduced the bill in 91 have not voted for D.C. statehood. He was also following the lead of the president, Donald Trump. So with Trump being weakened by this crazy takeover, attempted takeover of the Capitol, and um, with McConnell not being the uh, Senate majority leader, we have a great chance of statehood. It's amazing. It's tremendous. In the House, Congresswoman Norton has already gotten more than 200 co-sponsors. Yes. Only 218 votes are needed. Yes. Um, the objection that was often voiced in the Senate, certainly by Republicans, was that it would mean two more Democratic senators if the District of Columbia gained statehood. Shouldn't that argument be persuasive to all of the Democratic members of the Senate? Well, uh, Stand Up for Democracy feels, which is the group that I'm executive director of, feels that statehood is not a partisan issue. It's a nonpartisan issue. It's a civil rights issue. You have over 700,000, 12 people in the uh District of Columbia, who have taxation without representation. This is a civil rights issue, not a partisan issue. It's not about Democrats and Republicans. The Republicans have tried to make it into a partisan issue. If you fall into that, you are totally um, unaware of what civil rights is all about, what democracy is supposed to be all about. We don't have democracy in the nation's capital. This is absurd. We are in an absurd situation where our voices are not heard. We don't have a vote on the floor of the House or the Senate. We have not had one since 1801, since we became the capital of the United States. And this is a ridiculous situation for this country to carry forth. The absurdity can be seen in the uh, turmoil that happened at the Capitol when the District of Columbia could not even mobilize its own National Guard without the permission of the president or the vice president, and the president withheld that permission. That's a great example of why we need statehood. Uh, um, I think what's going on is the governors of states can mobilize their uh, National Guard. It created a situation where we had to depend on the president of the United States, who actually incited this rebellion against the Capitol, to call in the National Guard for Washington, D.C. That We can't continue like that. 
We need these rights of statehood. The rights of statehood have great implications. That is one perfect example of Askia. We need our rights as a state. Congressman Fontroy, who served 20 years as the D.C. delegate to the Congress, used to complain that the district had three twos, which were strikes against its getting statehood, too black, too liberal, and too democratic. Yes, he did say that. And at this time, as far as I know, we are still much overwhelmingly Democrat. We are, um, with the gentrification that has occurred in D.C., uh, we're slightly below um, 50% in uh, democratic democratic um, demographic makeup, and which is being black. But I know that black or white, you want your rights. You want your rights, black or white. Who cares about your color, black or white? It looks like the um, Capitol Hill police cared about your color. You cannot say that the people who tried to take over the Capitol were treated like the protesters in Black Lives Matter, who were overwhelmingly nonviolent. These people who tried to take over the Capitol of the United States of America, predominantly white, these uh, instigators, these um, traitors, were overwhelmingly white, and they were treated with white gloves. Douglas Commonwealth, which we will be called, Washington Douglas Commonwealth, named after the great emancipator Frederick Douglass, will consist only of D.C. property, will consist of only non-federal property. That's one thing that is in our bill that is to be understood. We distinguish between federal property and D.C. property. They're not the same. We're not trying to take over the whole um, capital of the, of the United States. We're taking over our neighborhoods and our schools and things that we should control as taxpaying citizens. Almost a generation ago, Kwesi and Fume, who's returned to Congress, uh, said once that if, if the District of Columbia got statehood, it would mean that 60,000 of his constituents would begin paying taxes that they don't have to pay now, and it was a tax issue. I think the um, commute, commuter tax has not been a problem. We had Elijah Cummings, who Mfumi, uh took over his seat, who passed away, who was a great supporter of D.C. statehood, realize that that is not a problem. That is not an issue that can be worked out between D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. We don't have to, uh, the residents of Maryland and Virginia do not have to fear. We will um, make that an issue that is not important to their pocketbook. Any more issues that are important to free D.C.? We have stood up for D.C. statehood since 1997. We have never wavered. Stand Up Free D.C. has stood for D.C. statehood. We want to be free. That's in our official name, Stand Up for Democracy in D.C. Free D.C. is our name. We've been standing 
standing strong and steady and consistently since 1997. We don't waver. We don't look at other um, bills that have come up, such as supporting Utah getting another vote. We want pure and simple statehood. We want our rights as American citizens, as taxpaying American citizens. D.C. residents deserve representation and the full rights of being a state, such as controlling your National Guard, such as controlling your own court system. These are things that we are being denied, which is not going to stand with the with us being the 51st state in the United States of America. Anise Jenkins, Stand Up Free D.C., thanks for talking with us. Thank you, Askia. Thank you for inviting me. This is a great time for D.C. statehood, a wonderful time. Senate victories by John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock in Georgia runoffs last week mean that Democrats control the White House and both houses of Congress for the first time in a dozen years. But November's election and Trump's ensuing antics aren't necessarily the final decisive battle between left and right. There is always the next election. So while we celebrate, we must also honor and support the voters and activists who won this election and will win the next. Reporter Chris Banker Drowns has that story. Cliff Albright is co-founder and executive director of the Black Voters Matter Fund. His organization had been leading socially distant bus tours and car caravans through black communities in Georgia to prepare for last week's runoff election, and their work clearly paid off. Indeed, the organization's long-standing bus tour tactic found even greater success in this era of COVID, when people are starved for human connection and interaction. Now more than ever, given the impact of coronavirus, when, when we were able to come into some communities, uh, in spite of COVID and being social distanced and having a lack of door-to-door, you know, direct conversations, when we're able to use the bus tour or our caravan strategy, which fits right along with our bus tour strategy, when we're able to go places that don't get a visit, it's actually become even more important. In fact, we got an email just the other day, a, a contact form on our website from a young person in one of the communities that we had just visited as part of our recent 12 days of Christmas bus tour during the runoff period here in Georgia. She just wanted to write to us and thank us because she said, y'all came to my community and she lives in a public housing community. She said, you came to my community and nobody else does that. And you've now let me know that I have power. And no matter how this election goes, uh, I know that I can be involved in changing my community. That's all we want, <laughs> right? If we, if, if we can have that impact in a community, the election results will take care of themselves. But that impact, that mindset shift, somebody, somebody young in this case, first time voter, that's the other thing she said, that she then went out and voted for the first time ever, somebody young, but also even if it's somebody older and everywhere in between, if we can get folks to believe that they got power and that they matter, that'll be longer lasting than just the election results. We talked this summer about the Georgia primary and we addressed long lines as being a big problem in that primary. And it seems like that was a problem again in the runoff. Your your statement released after the January 5th runoff mentions long lines and it mentions facing down agitators at the polls. 
And I'm wondering if you can take some time to just discuss what suppression of the black vote looked like during this runoff and maybe how it could be different from uh, suppression in previous elections. Yeah, you know, I think one of the things that was a little bit different about this runoff period, so you talk about the long lines and really the long lines were something that we saw more during the early vote period, especially during the runoff. There weren't a lot of long lines actually on election day, but that's because organizations did such a good job of getting the word out there about vote by mail. Um, and then did such a good job of pushing early voting that, you know, as usual on the, those first couple of days of early vote, you saw, you saw some of those lines, but not so much on election day itself. But the suppression that we saw during the runoff, a little bit was, was more the same. Like we, we saw this big effort by true, true to vote, right? Which is, which is an incredibly misleading and, and disinformation type, type name. But this conservative organization that goes around state to state um, wound up coming here for our runoff, trying to appeal to county board of elections to say that there were voters who had changed their addresses and therefore they had probably voted in two states or they should have been taken off the rolls. They're no longer Georgia residents. Incredibly frivolous, even insulting, because to a certain extent, you're talking about, in some cases, folks who are in the military who may have changed their address, folks who are in school, folks who maybe had to move someplace to deal with, um, you know, COVID-related health, family issues, um, any number of reasons, none of which they had any, any evidence of, but just like was coming from the White House, targeting counties that had large black and brown populations to try to get people purged from the list. That was part of the expression that we were taking. But the other piece is that the Secretary of State, the same Secretary of State that some people were looking at like a profile in Courage because he has a, a limit on how much suppression that he would do. Like he, he, he tried to do all kinds of suppression, but when it got to the point of like supporting an outright coup, he drew the line there and then people want to clap for him. No, he's, he was still suppressing folks. At the same time that he was telling Trump that there was no evidence of fraud, he was actually launching an investigation into four voting rights organizations, including our dear friends at the, the New Georgia Project, saying that you got these groups out here that are registering people that shouldn't be registered. It's the same function. It's really the chickens coming home to roost. You've been suppressing us here in Georgia. And then when you get into a conflict with Trump and now you're, you're catching the heat, which comes from some of the same tactics that you've been doing for years in this state. I'm glad you mentioned true the vote. It, it seems like the far right is dominating discourse around voting problems and, and electoral problems. And I wonder, do you foresee difficulty in addressing legitimate concerns of voter suppression in this political environment where the far right is just throwing around disinformation and outright lies about fraudulent voter activity? You know, I don't, I don't think that their efforts make it any more difficult. I mean, it's, I think it's difficult for us to get the voter suppression message out because we're, you know, oftentimes we're in states where we're going up against people who they, they I mean, they know the truth. They're, they're the ones doing it. They're just trying to um, just ignore what we're, what we're pointing out to them. In many ways, I think that this latest round of their, their screaming voter fraud has really hurt their case because what did they do? They took it too far. They took it to court, right? They they actually, you know, in sports, they talk about you can't believe your own press clippings. Like they started to believe, you know, or at least we're trying to pretend like they actually believe this stuff about voter fraud that they've been making up all along. And they were foolish enough to actually try to take it to court, which led to like 60 different court <laughs> losses. You know, it was like watching Groundhog Day or whatever, which and an enjoyable form of Groundhog Day. I got to see Trump lose this election like 60 times over and over and over again. And so they've actually hurt their case. And I don't think that that 
has in turn hurt us from being able to point out true cases of voter suppression because unlike them, when we raise voter suppression, we come with receipts. Like we come with the documentation of voters who were purged, like here in Georgia, 200,000 voters who got purged and we had the evidence to show that they should not have been purged. And the only reason that the state concluded that they had moved was because the state used the wrong addresses. Like, so when we, when we point out voter suppression, we've got the proof. You know, I could imagine there being a lot of exhaustion with politics after a year like this. And frankly, after a last week or two, like we've had, how is your organization and, and others like it going to stay active and going to keep communities engaged to prepare for what will probably be a re-energized Republican Party in the 2022 midterm elections? Yeah, so there's two ways that to, to, to end that. Um, you know, the, the, the first way for us to stay energized is for us to get a week off <laughs> or at least a few days to get some sleep. But the other way is that, you know, you know, you're asking about how do we get ready for this this onslaught or this opposition we'll face in 2022. And the reality is, you know, it starts now. It starts in 2021, right? There's going to be a lot of stuff on the ballot in 2021. Um, there's going to be local races in 2021. And all of that energy that we saw in the streets during the summer, the summer of protests, Black Lives Matter, police violence, some of those issues are dealt with at the federal level, right? We talked about the George Floyd Act. We talked about you know, we expect for Biden and, and the Justice Department to holding some of these police departments accountable and going back to consent decrees and, and things of that nature. So there's some federal stuff that needs to be done. There's some statewide stuff that needs to be done, but there's some local stuff that needs to be done, right? In fact, arguably, most of it is at the local level. It's not going to be hard to find issues on which to keep our communities engaged, to keep our partner organizations that we work with engaged. It's all right there, right? The question is going to be, are we going to see the same amount of resources now that folks feel like Black folks have saved democracy, right? Are we going to get the same amount of resources for those battles in 2021 that you saw flowing into some of these states for 2020? That's going to be the question. If we get those resources and if our partner groups get those and our communities get those, we know what to do with it. We've got the issues and we'll keep folks engaged in 2021. And then when we get to 2022, now we can talk about, you know, taking on these, these midterm elections and all the other stuff that's going to be up in 2022. But don't come to us in 2022 asking us to save the country again if you're not going to be around in 2021. We're not trying to hear that. Black voters aren't trying to hear that. Cliff Albright is co-founder and executive director of the Black Voters Matter Fund. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Bangert-Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Mohammed. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe. Keep your social distance. Mask up. And thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.